You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er fam? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and we are back with our usual extraordinary occurrences, which you guys know we've been trying to do once a month, but we're doing it with a spin this this week. Uh, not only do we have our co-host, our normal co-host for these episodes, producer extraordinaire Demarcus Adisa, but we've also invited some special guests, our cousins in podcasting, co-hosts of the Black and Highly Dangerous podcast, Terrell and Daphne are with us today. What's up, fam? What's up? What's up? Happy to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really love your podcast. And like you said, we're family in this game. So nice to be mm-hmm. on. Absolutely. So we're really excited for a couple of reasons, not just to mix it up, but also because as we were just discussing, I think all of us are a bit mentally and emotionally drained. <laughs> so it feels good to share uh, the weight a little bit of getting this content out here with folks that we know can relate to what we're feeling. Um, and not only just the grind of trying to educate and amplify voices as well, but also um, deal with your own feelings and emotions around what's going on by, by while also ma- maintaining some consistency with our respective shows. So we're happy to have you. Glad to be here for sure. Uh, like Daph and I have said these past couple of weeks, even on our own platform, is that sometimes it gets tough to keep talking about these things, right? Um, but I think that, you know, when, when DeMarcus hit us up and we was like, yeah, this is a great idea because we need to have a separate space, like you said earlier, off air, Delisha, to a responsibility to our listeners to actually spend the dedicated time to address this. I mean, both of us have interview platforms, and I think that a lot of times our listeners just want to be able to take and learn from us and hear what we have to say. And also, it's therapeutic and for us to be able to have this space too to just share how we feel about what's going on in the world, especially as Black folk. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a lot of feelings, a lot of things that we probably said on our own platforms, but we haven't said. And so it's good to have this kind of cross-platform to be able to, to share those thoughts because um, I'm definitely interested to hear what you all have to say as well. A whole lot. DeMarcus is being quiet today. I think he's thinking he might say too much. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a whole lot to say. And, and me and Terrell had a great conversation offline. I mean, one of the things that I have really been thinking about is I know what our narrative is as people, you know, being extraordinary on an ordinary day. But these are like in ordinary times. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen on a lot of platforms and what we, me and Terrell really got deep about is like people are having these discussions and they're not pulling in experts on the situation. Um, so it's like a lot of celebrities and attention, and their voices are important, but you have people like Terrell and Daphne that actually do this work and talk about society and changing the institutions. And I thought even on our little platforms, it would be irresponsible for us to have the conversation without looping in people who are actually doing the work on an academic level. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, we, like many shows, have been turning our focus in the last uh, couple of weeks to what is happening in the world. But I think it's important to note that you both, Terrell and Daphne, you've been educating now, what, two and a half years on, yep. this, on this platform? Yeah. Forget the work that you do, right? Let alone the work that you do in out in the world as academics and professionals. But this is what your show has been about, uh, bridging the gap between academia and the general public um, to educate. So I guess a, a good place to start is just ask how you're feeling. Um, you know, I remember a few weeks ago uh, we were doing some Oh Lord news and, um, you oh, know, you have to, yeah, yeah. You have to like really be informed, like you have to read every possible story. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I start compiling the stories and I'm just like 
wow, am I going to have to talk about this again? Wow. Another story. And it's just like, it, it, sometimes it feels like deja vu, like different name, but kind of same narrative, same, you know, story, same issue. And so I, I've been exhausted and tired and just like wondering where do we go from here? Because at this point, I'm tired of telling the same story. I want to tell a different narrative. I want to be able to talk about the revolution and not just um, the stories of being victimized and experiencing violence. Um, so that's kind of where I am now. And, and you know, I share those sentiments and I also feel that um, I feel like a lot of folks probably feel the same way. And what Daphne was saying is just a sense of when, when is it going to be over? You know, um, we've had, like, like you said, Delisha, we've all been doing this about the same amount of time. So two and a half years, and this isn't the first time <laughs> we've, t- we've kind of discussed this and created space to have these conversations. And then it gets to the point, like, you know, just to be honest, you do want to remain hopeful. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, okay, this will pass three months from now, six months from now, what are we going to see again? Right. And, um, and just really getting frustrated and tired of seeing our people die. Um, and yes, we see the protests. Yes, we see the donations. Yes, we see the wonderful social media posts. But at the end of the day, what is it going to take that six months from now, we will not see another Black person die at the hands of police? Is the, I think we need to start taking that serious, more serious than we had in the past. I feel like the protest and the posts, again, are therapeutic and it helps you release and feel connected to people who are going through similar things. But now I think um, there should be a stronger accountability for everyone involved that really does care and say, OK, you know what? After this protest and after this stuff kind of fizzles out, we still have to have that same vigor to create change um, because I, I'm I'm kind of exhausted. It, it takes a lot out. You know, I think this collective traumatic experience we all feel when we see these Im- this imagery time and time and time again, I think for, th- for those of us that really care, which is a lot of us, um, I just feel like it, it's just like, ah, what what can we say now? You know, what can we possibly say? Yeah. And I've been talking to friends and colleagues and family and, and everybody. And, and I think one of the, the things that I hear from folks consistently is that they're struggling between not wanting to remain quiet for fear of appearing apathetic, but at the same time being so tired of being redundant and saying the same thing mm-hmm. every time something happens um, that they're a bit paralyzed, you know, at, at the point. And, and I think that is the, the thought that I've been having, um, in terms of just the, the protests and listen, I'm, I'm definitely not one of those people who is like, stop tearing things down, right? People need to express themselves and we all have our lanes to do that. But my focus is definitely on from a policy reform level and from a systemic level, how do we affect change once everybody goes home? Because we've seen, it's, it's reached a fever pitch globally where I think maybe we haven't seen that in, in recent years, but we've seen, and I brought this up last week, we've seen the blocking of the highways. We've seen whole towns um, ha- having an uprising within the Black community. But at some point, everybody goes home and we, we can't go home and continue to live our lives the way we were living it before until the next thing happens. And, and so I think, you know, there's just been post, this post has been floating around about everybody finding their lane and working that lane and all lanes are important. Uh, but this is going to be a sustain, sustained fight if we want to see actual mm-hmm. change. Um, the, the, the people who are out marching right now, that is a lane. But we've got to look at all these lanes collectively and figure out how we consistently give effort to them in a way that is going to affect change at some point. I, it's not going to be overnight, but at some point. Mm-hmm. I was about to say, that's kind of where I've been lately trying to figure out where I fit 
in these things. I have participated in protests in the past. You know, in 2004, I remember marching through the streets in Boston. And, you know, that was really awesome. But I also feel like I probably have other um other lane that I want to go into in terms of using my expertise, using uh, what I feel are probably my strengths. And you brought up a really uh, interesting point, Alicia, that I have kind of been thinking about lately, the idea that people have had to perform outrage uh, for fear of seeming apathetic. And I'm happy Mm -hmm. that we're moving towards conversations that look at the idea that everybody is potentially working in their own ways. And just because my outrage or my expressions of outrage does not look like yours, it doesn't mean that I am not just as upset about what's happening. Um, And so that's kind of where I was because, you know, uh, somebody reached out to me on Twitter um, because I hadn't yet posted my feelings. And they were like, how do you how do you do it? How do you stay so You know, how do you now address this publicly? And one, I'm on multiple social media platforms. So maybe I say something on one and not the other. But, you know, it was really weird to me that I was like, wow, people are really looking for me to say something. And if I don't, that could be misconstrued as I don't care. That's a very interesting point. I was talking to two of my non-Black friends this week that kind of brought that up. And, you know, there was that popular post going around. And, you know, if your friends who are silent, man, that they're really saying something right now. And two of my friends, one of which is Indian, one is a white gentleman. I know them very well. They're outraged, but they're like, we know Black people well enough to know that, like, at a time like this, they don't want to hear from us. Like, we're outraged, too. But if I call you, like, what are you going to tell me? How are you going to process it? And I don't really have the right words. I don't think posting a black square or putting a picture up is necessarily going to change anything. And I thought that was really interesting because I hadn't heard anybody from a uh, different uh, racial group take that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and I'd, I'd add to that <laughs> this conversation by two of saying one of the reasons that I've been kind of more silent than usual is just the reality. I feel like the things I really want to say it just wouldn't be digested well from a lot of people, you know. Uh, it's still we still have to up, maintain a, a public image, if you will, sometimes. And I feel like just the the frustration, the anger, the languages I really would want to use. Uh, I just like, yeah, you know, what? I'm just gonna keep this to myself for now um, because then people will probably look at me different, you know, by the kind of tweets or posts that I would really put when this stuff really happens. As far as the genuine, authentic feelings that I have in those raw moments, uh, and so sometimes I think a lot of people feel that too. And you're like, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stay quiet <laughs> so that way I can maybe keep my job later or keep some of my professional ties. And I think that's something that Black folks also deal with too, right? That that double-edged sword that we have to kind of keep this dual identity and sometimes can never really full, fully express the way we truly feel, uh, which we should be allowed to rightfully so when we see these kind of things. Absolutely. And and I've been seeing all these op- articles pop up and I actually posted one about the difficulty of maintaining professionalism um, while all of this is going on in the world. And sometimes you will see detractors, you know, who even look like us, other black folks who are like, if you're all about the movement, you shouldn't be worried about that job. Um, but the, the reality of it is outside of just the economic considerations of that, we need to be in these spaces. We need to be in, and have presence in uh, majority white spaces to not only um, provide advocacy and, and have a seat at the table. Uh, but also the reality of it is at, through every phase of our movements, if you go back to the civil rights era, there was always people who were moneyed, who were supporting those who were on the front lines, right? So the, the ability to 
Uh, there are those who have dedicated 100% of themselves and, and their time to being out there and saying, I don't care if I get arrested. I don't care if I get killed. I don't care what happens. I'm marching and I'm doing what I need to do and I will burn it all to the ground. And there are those of us who go to a job every day, um, who quietly give to bail funds or who are working within our respective institutions to get large sums of money, five and six figures donated to the cause that we support. Um, and we're banging the drum inside just in a different way. And it, it may mean mm-hmm. that we can't utilize the language that we want to use, but the economics of it, because I've talked to several friends this week with C-suite coming to them and saying, what do we do? And it's the black folks who were saying, not only do you need to make a statement, but you need to act. You need to write a check. Here are some orgs you can look at. So um, I think that's equally as important. And sometimes it's hard to be stifled in terms of what you really want to say. But on the other side of that, the pro to having to do that is that you have a voice somewhere else um, and being able to use the appropriate language and, and still affect change. That actually makes me think of Patricia Hill Collins' book um, called On Intellectual Activism. And she actually talks about the importance of, so you talked about like being in these spaces and being able to speak truth to power or the people who will ultimately make decisions that will positively or negatively impact us and our communities. You have to know the language to speak to power. Uh, She Mm -hmm. specifically talks about that and about the importance of being in the, quote, belly of the beast in order to do it. Like sometimes you cannot create the change you want from outside. Sometimes you have to work from within inside. And so, like you said, we need people on both um, and that can speak the language to power and speak the language to the people. Absolutely. Both of those components are necessary. And I think if we want to see real impact, we have to value each equally. It's it's not a game of like who's fighting the most. And and quite frankly, to the point you were making earlier, DeMarcus, I have plenty of white friends um, who've been speaking out and those who have been silent. And I think it takes just as much courage to remain silent because you don't know what to say <laughs> as it as it does to speak uh, to speak which um brings me to another thing that I definitely want to discuss we, I'm sure we all uh saw TI's speech calling Atlanta Wakanda and mm-hmm. a, a lot of other celebs who've been putting their their foot, feet in their mouths uh trying to comment on something they're just not equipped to there, there's a uh it's customary right it's standard when things like this happen that news outlets and various uh, media platforms will just grab the first black celebrity they can find who they mm-hmm. think, you know, might draw eyes. And whether they have any knowledge or any expertise or not, putting them in front of a global audience and asking their opinion. Do you think the onus is on the networks and the various media outlets and politicians to stop doing this or on the celebrities to say, wait a minute, I'm not the best voice for this. So no, thank you. I think. Um... I personally think it's on the celebrities, uh, corporations, entities that are built off of public views and viewership and getting eyes. They're always going to pull on the names that bring the most attention. Um, so, yes, a, a academic author and you know whatever office somewhere is not going to bring thousands upon millions of eyes. But a name like T.I. or Killer Mike and all these other folks that are getting these platforms, they're the ones that they're going to go to first without probably fully thinking it. How impactful will this be? Um, so I know in our conversation that Demarcus and I had off air, you know, we addressed, we said, I think that 
the celebrity should be intentional, understanding that the power they yield is that, yes, we can bring in millions of viewers. But when so we're going to use our name potentially to get the eyes on us and then we're going to pass the ball quickly to whoever is knowledgeable on that subject. I feel like they have to begin to have that responsibility instead of just saying because, hey, because they asked me and I can see why they would do that. Right. They're tapping them and like, oh, well, they feel honored or they feel they have this responsibility or obligation to speak for all the folks. But I think they have to begin to come to some kind of self-awareness saying like, listen, I'm not the best person to come address this. You know, I, I may know some things. I may know a little bit, but if I'm a, a music artist, not saying that you can be limited to that, but that's your expert area. Right. Um, and although you are a black person and have certain experiences, there is a certain strategic, knowledgeable way to go about this. And I feel like that's when you kind of use that opportunity to pass it off to these folks. Say, hey, I'm T.I. and this is how I feel. But there's somebody here who has been studying this for years and they can articulate it better that what, you know, what has worked in the past or what do we need to do to move forward instead of it just being on them. Because, um, yeah, we can, I, I just personally feel we can never really trust the news media outlets uh, as Black folk to do those kind of things. Uh, but yeah, in short, the celebrities are, are the ones that should be taking that responsibility in my eyes. For sure. And, you know, speaking of like trusting media outlets, I think um, what, what I am getting a little bit frustrated about is when I talk to people and they talk as if um, police brutality is reaching a fever pitch because the articles are coming fast and furious and the stories are coming fast and furious now, not realizing that that's the narrative and that's the focus today. But this has continually happened. And, and you all can probably speak better than I can about the statistics, but um, this has continually happened over the years. It's just like, because this is a focus across the globe at this point, you're seeing the articles more, right? Where they're, they're telling stories, they're actually resurrecting stories that didn't get attention two years ago. But um, I, I wish we, we had more sensitivity to how much the media actually controls the narrative um, and understanding that there are, there are incidents that happen that may not get the press or, or publicity, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Right. Um, and, and I've had several conversations where and people said it's just it's just getting so bad. I'm like, it's been bad, bro. Like this, this is not new. It's just they're hitting you um, repeatedly now, you know, with, mm-hmm. with the stories as well. So um, I, I just wish people took that into consideration that we're living in this. And and if you do the research, you'll realize there are, there are a lot more stories out there uh, than than we realize. I think I think that's why. um um, we're seeing so much activism in different cities. Uh, I think me and Terrell were speaking about this this week, but like, um, you know, I, I've, I saw some comments of people saying like, you know, why are they getting mad in L.A.? Like that happened in Minnesota. And it's like, no, no, there, no, there are, no, there are shit department doing things that haven't branched out to broader communities. The world doesn't know about it, but they know. But this is the catalyst to spark people to bring more light to these stories, like how that Breonna Taylor um, story has caught so much light out in Louisville. We would have never known about that if it wasn't for the events that happened in Minneapolis. Yeah, I was about to say, just looking, so what has struck me is like every single day that I go onto social media, I actually see another story about something that's happened in like a city unrelated to uh, Minneapolis. And it's just kind of like a, I think that that is why this is becoming more of a global moment is because People, you know, the cameras, social media, people can quickly spread the stories. And it's just kind of like this is all connected. It's in separate places, but this is all connected under one larger system of white supremacy um, and oppression of people of color and particularly black people. Absolutely. Um, And I struggle and I'd love to hear how you guys feel about this, but I struggle with 
the constant imagery of our assault, assault, the assault against our, our people um, and the, the murder, quite frankly, of our people and, and seeing that almost at this point on a 24-7 cycle. Um, and there are people where this is all they, they promote at this point. And um, it's hard to watch and it's hard to see. So there's one side of me that says, no, the public needs to see. But then there's the other side of me that, that says not only um, is the public watching this, but these people's families are watching it or those who are, are triggered by it or having a, a trauma response. Um, and there are fo- folks who have deemed it trauma porn. Uh, those who continuously share mm-hmm. these in, in, uh, incidents um, and circulate them on the internet. How do you two feel? Um, and I'd love to hear your opinion too, Demarcus. How do you two feel about this constant promotion and publication of Black death and Black assault? I was just telling Ty that um, I've had to step away because I think that was also just negatively impacting uh, my mental health, like going on. And so you know, people watch all types of movies. Sometimes they're action, sometimes they have violence. And it's just, it's so strange to me um, to like go on the internet. And like, there was an incident in Buffalo, uh, New York, where police officers pushed a 75 year old man. Um, He hit his head on a concrete and to see him laying there, to see the blood, I'm just like, you know what? This is too much. I, I cannot do this um, anymore. So I have actually decided to the extent possible. I I don't need to see the images. I know they exist. Um, I know that this is happening. I don't need to be convinced on that front. And at this point, it is just becoming um, triggering to me. Is is very triggering. So I've decided that in terms of that, um, I, I can't I can't watch it anymore um, for my own. Uh, mental health and self-care. Yeah, uh, I've, I can't, what I do is I, when things happen, I, I generally just watch the video one time because um, I feel that there's a, a weird kind of responsibility that I just personally feel I have to just not only just watch it, but be educated as far as what exactly happened. So when I talk about it, um, I can talk about it accurately. Um, I could talk about it with purpose. Um, it'll be hard to do that without witnessing or seeing what happened. Um, but after that one time and I kind of take it in and see what happened, then that's usually enough, uh, you know, because it'll come on my timeline again or whatever. I'll scroll past it. I click by it. And in occasions when I feel like there have been some accounts that have just been showing it too much, I just block mute them. Um, so it's not continuously coming up. Uh, but like you said, the repetitiveness of it makes it difficult to escape it at times, especially when you're on social media, especially when we are trying to do public work like we all are trying to do. And we like to stay informed as far as what is going on, what is trending um, so we can address it if we can, if possible. It's just hard to miss it. Um, and, and it kind of has this weird, eerie feeling because on one end, it is used to you know inform folks. On another end, it enrages folks. And then I feel like there's another side that we kind of don't discuss is where folks want to see this, right? Um, on the opposite side, those white supremacists, those folks that really hate us, similar to when we see things like um, the imagery of lynching back in the day and how it was a huge skeptical, uh, 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 not skeptical, a huge, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Spectacle, yeah, it's a skeptical of, uh, you know, they were picnicking, barbecuing, whatever, you know, just um, taking pictures and white folks were loving it and enjoying it, right? And I feel like that's kind of what happens too in some of these cases. When we see this imagery, there's a subset of folks who are holding it up to that on that same pedestal and platform of, of celebrating uh, what has just transpired in a lot of ways, um, which is problematic too. And I don't know 
if we really discuss that enough. But I, I, I can see that for sure happening. Yeah, I, I, um, I have to disconnect from it. I can't take it. It's just a whole lot um, to to view uh, violence in that way. And then it's triggering for if you've had police encounters in the past, uh, your own encounters and personal experiences, and you think what could happen, what could have happened in the past and what could possibly happen in the future. So I, I'm not a big fan of it, although I understand why people um, show these videos and share these videos because some people need that. But what's frustrating to me is that these videos have to be shown to get this sort of response. You don't see anyone else die mm-hmm. on the news. When, when schools are shot up, you don't see footage of people shooting children and teachers. You don't see images of, uh, you know, combat zones overseas. We just get the story and people react. But I just hate that every time that uh, a black person dies, their actual body has to be strewn and spread across my timeline and my social media to, to elicit a response from people. It can't just be an article. People have to actually see mm-hmm. it. And it's like, it, does that what it is that what it takes for you to acknowledge my humanity? And if it's that, it's something that's very wrong with this country and how we view each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's what I've been struggling with um, as I navigate predominantly white spaces. Uh, this idea that like, it's touch it's touching my heart. I just didn't know. And I'm thinking, do you read? Like, you know, because um this the, there are centuries of this, right? In in this in this country. And to your point, Demarcus, why do you have to see something um so brutal and, and traumatic for uh for you to feel it? And and you know, I I have been reading a lot, but I've been avoiding a lot of video. So I have not seen the George Floyd video. Um, I did not watch the video of Maude. I, you know, so I, I have been at a place where I see the stills. So the, you know, the screenshots and things like that. Um, but it's so hard for me to get the imagery out of my head. And I feel that I don't need to see it, um, in order to understand what happened, but also, um, what I, in terms of the saying informed piece, Terrell, that you mentioned, What's important for me, especially as having a legal background, is to then read the legal document. Um, so that is when I will get into the details um, of reading that information to kind of understand the evidence that's being presented and, and what's happening with with the case or the charges, um, et cetera. And also just even though I'm no criminal lawyer, uh, criminal defense or uh, from a prose- prosecutorial perspective, I've never worked in that space. But of course, I have a basic understanding of the law. Um, so I try to get a feel for what the charges are and what I think the strategy is um, on both sides of the fence. And um, so th- that's the the work that I do. But I definitely want to bring up something that you said, um, Terrell, about, you know, people taking uh, pre- pleasure in the spectacle. Um, ironically, I was watching a video this morning of uh, folks toppling a statue in the UK, in Bristol, um, of a racist historical figure. And they dragged the statue and threw it into the harbor and folks were cheering and it was, you know, it's the UK and, and they've been turned, for lack of a better word. Um, my collegiate vocabulary is escaping me right now, but they've, you know, really Europe is, is going in at the moment. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But there were a lot of white folks there who were, you know, cheering and going crazy. And the first thought that I had was, are you an ally? Or are you just hungry for anarchy? And um, that's a difficult conversation to have with people, but mm-hmm. it's an important and it's an honest, I think, consideration for us to make. And that everybody out there is not out there because they're committed to the cause. Some people are just looking for action. 
um, and to get an adrenaline rush and, and do whatever. And that's not everybody. And I don't, you know, I don't want the not all folks to come after me, not all of us, but that's the reality. Um, and people have, you know, they call the whole agitator piece a conspiracy theory and some people really buy into it. And I think it's a mixed bag. But there, I think personally, my opinion is there are absolutely people out there who are not supporting the cause, who just looking to get that that rush of being in the middle of it all. That's been uh, one of my biggest questions slash concerns with what we've been seeing, um, because the the reality is in Daph and I've talked, I've talked to this with my wife, is that I feel that even here in the U.S., I know your example is in the U.K., but here in the U.S., I feel that there's a much stronger white presence <laughs> than we've seen in past protests. Again, we've said this is not the first time we've seen this happen in this country, um, but this idea, and again, I know Many folks are allies and many folks are probably trying to help. But at the same time, I have to take a step back and and, and like, is this OK? This is something a little odd was what I'm seeing right now with this amount of support for this case, which we've seen time and time again. Um, I think there's maybe a couple of reasons for that. And this is just me theorizing. One is that, you know, we are in the midst of a massive, you know, economic downturn because of COVID. Maybe there's a lot of extra pent up frustration and energies that people are just trying to let out. Um, and then on the other hand, too, you know, I feel that politically there might be some just cause for this. We've seen this in 2016 when they were, you know, the Russians and so were using the Black Lives Matter movement to spew whatever they wanted um, and get things across. And then I also feel that this is coming at a certain time, too, because Daph and I have had a conversation a few episodes ago with a, with a, a Bernie supporter and folks that are, uh, I wouldn't say radical, but are taking different views that we're used to when it comes to supporting the political structure and talking about revolution here in this country. Um, and I'll just, I'm not just putting this on Bernie supporters, but this kind of rhetoric we've been noticing as far as like, you know what, let's just kind of burn the system down. And that's the only way we're going to see true change. People that are upset about the status quo on both sides, political parties or what have you. And I feel like there's a mix of that element in here as well of folks who just want to uh, really demonstrate what this revolution could be using the Black Lives Matter movement as this kind of vessel for their own purposes. And I feel like if we're not careful, um, because some of the rumblings we've heard from people who are on the front lines have been saying like, oh, this, these are white folks out here. And we've seen pictures, right? Setting things on fire and looting and starting it. But then the imagery we constantly see are black folks in there taking stuff or whatever. Um, and I think we need to just begin to just take a step back and think carefully, not that we should um, be resistant to any kind of allyship or what have you. But also, I think as black folks, we've always had this kind of natural gut core feeling of when things are a little iffy when it comes to certain movements and issues historically. And I feel like, you know, although we shouldn't resist all the allyship that we see, I think if we do feel like something's a little weird and a little off, we should take and create the space to question that a little bit because of what we've seen historically in the past um, and, not, and just in 2016, not, not too far in the past and kind of the mixed emotions of a lot of folks where we see now today, again, using the Black Lives Matter as that vessel to, for their own purposes. Um, I think we should talk about that a little bit more because I think all maybe saying it's all a little bit too good to be true. It seems like in some some aspects. <laughs> I think I think we need to question people all around the board. It's a lot of celebrities and corporations and politicians who are using this to push whatever their agendas are. They're talking about voting, but it's like for what? You know, they're like, oh, I stand with you, but it's like. You know, you if you're in a position of power within your respective city, don't just stand with us. Start talking about ideas and solutions to combat these issues. Like it's more than just taking knees or standing and locking arms with protesters mm -hmm. for the image, uh, whatever. And that's what kind of frustrates me. It's like you know, we just saw um, people on you know a federal level, a state level, 
uh, municipal level, make sweeping changes to deal with COVID. But, you know, now with these these things happening, everyone's kind of sitting on their hands like, yeah, someone should do something. It just doesn't add up for me. Um, kind of, uh, you know, keeping on this conversation with um, who is actually you know, behind some of these uh, more violent acts. There was actually a really interesting discussion on Twitter from Black anarchists saying that they feel like they are being erased in uh, narratives that paint the anarchists as white suburban kids. And yet, Mm -hmm. so um, there were a bunch of Twitter discussions about it to say, you know, don't erase us. And they uh, shouted out uh, a Black anarchist from 1905 named Lucy Parsons. Um, So it's just kind of like a, it's, it's, it's a lot going on right now. <laughs> and I think it's hard to paint a clear narrative of who's out there and what's happening. It's a lot of movements going on at once. Um, and it's a lot of uh, intersectional identities coming together in like each of these spaces that I think is just making this moment really big right now. For sure. And I, I definitely want to talk about um, from the quote anarchy piece, one of the comments, and I know you guys have heard it, um, probably discussed it or thought about it at least, um, but one of the the areas of commentary that comes from detractors of protesting is always, what about the looters and the people who are destroying their own communities? Um, and I've heard conflicting uh, opinions on this uh, in terms of people saying, yes, like tearing our community down is not going to help anything. And others who say um, people are enraged and if they need to burn it all down, they need to just burn it all down. And that's what needs to happen. Um, where do you all fall on, on the spectrum there? Well, my thing is for years, people wanted to kneel peacefully, protest peacefully. Clearly, it didn't get people's attention worldwide until there was um, uh, some other stuff going on. And so, so it seems like people needed um, their attention. But I've also been reading a lot that like, most of these protests, they stay peaceful until police get aggressive. Like they like the police presence and their aggressiveness escalates things. So it's just kind of like essentially like we tried to do it peacefully and now now you have this. So how are you going to respond to it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a conversation we've seen in the past from you know, changing from the civil rights kind of idea with some folks doing peaceful protests to others who were labeled as militant, but all they were saying is like, we're not going to be pacifists in this situation, right? When you hit us, we're going to hit back. Um, and I think that we are seeing, um, you know, definitely pent up frustration and all that in those situations. And I think that it's important to just acknowledge, you know, why this is happening. Um, and not really, a lot of times we see a lot of judgment coming from this. Uh, but I think kind of what Daphne was saying, one of the biggest, uh, changing points or why we see what we see is essentially it's kind of a weird situation when we have these protests and people are starting out wanting to be peaceful, but the folks that you are mad at the most that you are livid at, frustrated, angered, you hate, are the ones sitting right in front of you still controlling that space and that environment, right? The police. And so I think that also we have to begin finding maybe different ways of, I know they're supposed to be there for public safety, quote unquote, but allowing the people just to do it themselves, right? Without the police presence there, because um, those oppressors are in front of your face and you're trying to protest them and it creates just a lot more tension, right? Um, And if you can remove that presence, then you can allow people to vent 
and uh, release as they will. And there, you, my guess is that we would see if somebody were to do a study with this and we would use that, I would say um, have the independent variable be, be the, the police presence, how much police presence you have. And I feel like the places that have a lower amount of police presence, we probably would see a lower amount of uh, destruction mm-hmm. and violence happen. So, so one of the things that came out, I saw it uh, last night, DeMarcus sent it to me, is the mayor of Minneapolis was out in the middle of uh, protests and someone jumped on a mic and asked him if he would defund the police uh, in the moment. I don't know if you guys saw that clip. And he said no. After some nervous shifting his weight uh, from one foot to the, the next, uh, he said no and basically told him to leave. <laughs> and it, it was a lot more aggressive than that and some mm. uh, choice words used. But basically they got him out of there. Um, and I know that there have been proposals uh, circulating online about whether the solution is to defund the police or to inject more money uh, into police budgets for training and the like. Personally, I'm not an, a fan of the inject more money idea. Um, but I, I think so. My question to you, to you all is, is twofold. One is a, is a protest the place to put a, a politician or a government leader on the spot um, for what is a, a, a really complex issue uh, and ask what they're going to do about it, number one. That's the first thing I want to explore. And then also wanting to explore how you feel about this concept of concept of defunding the police versus actually injecting more money um, into that, that branch right, of, of an official capacity. Whether mm, I feel like because these conversations have been happening, I feel like if you're an elected official, you're going to go into these settings. You have to be prepared for what's to come. Um, I feel like these conversations aren't even new. So I know one person who has uh, talked a lot about this issue publicly um, and they've been doing so for almost a year now. Phil McHarris, uh, who was actually on our podcast this week. Um, there's a lot of public information about it. The abolitionist movement um, for prisons and policing, it's been out there. So if you're going to a protest uh, or going in a setting where you know people are actively fighting against police brutality and policing in its current state, I think you just have to be informed on the issues and, and prepared. And I don't feel like there's any excuse. Like you're not being put on a spot. You you put yourself there. Especially if you're going to wear a mask that says, I can't breathe. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. you're in the middle of it. You acting like an ally, you know, mm-hmm. as, as mayor of town with this incident happened. You got to be, pre- be ready to answer for that. I'm it's, sorry. It's a protest. It's not a photo op. And if you're a person in power and leadership, come with some solutions um, and be proactive about it. So you don't get put in a position where you get asked a yes and no question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you're a public public servant. You're in a public office, so you should be uh, feeling you should feel comfortable speaking to the public. Uh, and it's not always going to be scripted and controlled. You're going to need to have direct dialogue and conversation, and feel the raw emotions and and concerns of folks that you are supposed to represent. So, yeah, you're held at a higher regard like that, and you should be able to be. Even if you don't have all the answers, you should be readily able to listen because it's you're there to meet the concerns and give the people what they want, not what you want, right? And so if this is a, a concern or something that your constituents would like to see, then you should take that in and consider it instead of just saying no right off the bat, right? Um, and I think that's just their responsibility. And so when they don't do that, then you have to begin to ask your question as a constituent, was well, this the person that I want to represent me since they won't even listen to the questions and concerns I have right now because they feel uncomfortable, right? And that's the power we have as voters is that we 
do have that power to say, you know what, you messed up. And so don't think you're getting my vote next time. Um, and then they'll have to listen or the next person in will be much better representative of your wants and needs in that time. Absolutely. Um, and uh, the defunding piece, I think, is important, too, because, you know, the reason why the police departments, one of the reasons why the police departments, you know, had still stems from we heard this time and time again with that 94 crime bill. And we've seen millions upon millions of dollars from the government get directed to budget uh, to budgets for police departments. Um, and it was this whole era that we were fully that most of us are fully against now. Right. That law and order politics and speak and all that kind of stuff. And so now that because we're moving away from that, then it makes sense to also take money away from those policies that support that and represent that, which is funding the police department, um, which is shown not to be effective, which is shown not to reduce crime and work. Right. That we would like to see. And even some cases I know I've seen. Um, I can't remember the article. I would like to give credit to it, but it's out there. Um, recently discussed with my wife is the fact that some of these police departments are funded. Well, when these situations happen, say in the case of like George Floyd and the police departments go up, um, a lot of times I think the pensions, uh, the, the, the taxpayers are the ones who are responsible for paying for uh, their own cases. Um, the pensions are a good idea and should be used uh, to fund this. So that way police departments are losing um, like their retirement funds to support these bad officers, right? To me, that's a more effective way because then you won't see as much support for them and they'll handle them better because a lot of times when we see these police officers are in one department and they mess up and they do something crazy racist and then they get hired in another department, right? And if now they're held responsibility or their colleagues are losing money uh, because of this, then it makes a big difference instead of taking the, for them to kill their own citizens and then the citizens pay to protect their killer is a strange and weird cycle that we've been seeing. So I think conversations about defunding should happen and how we defund um, is more important too. And I think it's all about making the police officers way more accountable in those situations. Absolutely. And that, that's something I've been saying, you know, for the last few weeks, everybody responds to economics. We respond to dollars mm-hmm. and cents. And if you're, you're insulated from feeling the economic Im- impact of, uh, frankly, what I deem illegal behavior, um, and you know that you get to go sit at a desk or, as you mentioned, Ty, like just moving over to uh, some other department. There's no punishment there that you're going to feel in a way that is going to change behavior. So mm-hmm. and, until we're having that conversation about who's bearing the burden of bad decisions, I don't want to hear anything about us a few bad apples because those few bad apples that the people are who are paying for to insulate, insulate them for liability. So it affects everybody. Um I don't know if we're going to get there. Uh, maybe I'm jaded, but um, I, I, I agree with that approach. Until it, it hits and it hurts in the pocket, I don't think we're going to see much change. Because even on the criminal front, I mean, we've seen charges come up in, in rare instances, but the the chance of actually seeing a guilty verdict, and it's already been said in this George Floyd, Floyd case, they set the stage and said it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I just feel like that's laying the foundation for disappointment already. Um and so I, I think that economic piece is absolutely necessary if we want to see um, uh, behavioral changes at, at an organizational level, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to mention with the defund uh, the police movement is that because some people are like, what does that mean? You want to get rid of police officers? Like, what does that look like? And it's also important to note that like the the concept of defunding the police is kind of like a, a spectrum. Like there are people that are like, just just throw the whole system away. And then there are some like defunding means taking some of the resources that are provided to police officers and putting it toward more um, effective public safety measures. Because, you know, the question behind it is, 
do police officers act in a public safety capacity? Are they actually ensuring the safety of the public? And when we look at some of these videos of the protests, it I, I don't get enforcing public safety from some of those images. So it's just kind of like, you know, people have been asking questions like if we did divert some of that money away from uh, police, where would we want to put it? Maybe into education, maybe into more counseling and, and social services. Um, so it's not necessarily, depending on who you talk to, it's not necessarily like there would exist no police, but it's just kind of like, do they really need the millions of dollars to have these tanks to look like somebody's military? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. And a lot of times when I talk to my students, I always pose this question, right, um, of what is our ultimate goal when it comes to the criminal justice system? And I guess most people will say our ultimate goal is, you know, public safety to reduce crime. Um, and the catch-22 with policing is that it's not a preventative measure. It's a reactive measure, right? Right. Police only come when there is an issue, but yet we fund the police as if they are preventing crime. And so there's tons of research, right, uh, saying that taking preventative measures, whether it's having better school, after school programs with the youth, increasing economic standings in communities, et cetera, all these kinds of things, right, are more likely to reduce crime than increasing a police presence. So why do we use our dollars to something that's not getting us to our ultimate goal? Right. And so I think that's when we start talking about the funding, too, is like Daphne was saying, the spectrum, let's take, OK, police departments get a lot of money for a lot of excess things. Let's give them what they need to do their basic runnings or whatever. And that hundred, hundred and fifty million dollars that we have in the state budget dedicated to them. Let's put it into some after school program. Let's put it into boosting the economy in some areas that we would like to target specifically. And that's more preventative and more successful in reducing crime than taking these reactive measures. Right. So it makes sense. Yeah. And I think there there needs to be more conversations had um, with regard to these things at a systemic level. Right. Because we're looking at how people are reacting to the police. Um, But I think less conversations are being had about the lack of social services uh, in our in our communities, the lack of access to mental health, mental health treatments, um, programs that advance us economically and academically etc. So what I think the reactions sometimes that we're seeing are reactions to a compounded problem. And what people see on the surface is people are angry about police brutality. And that is true. But people are angry and it's boiling over for a lot of reasons. Um, and, And there are a lot of different ways that we need to be hitting and examining a problem. And the the redirecting of funds to 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 actually improve conditions in some of these other areas, um, I think is important. And also what I think is important is to look at the way we train officers in the U.S. These are people who can come out of high school. I honestly don't know what kind of psychological evaluations they, they go through, but they can come out of high school. They go through training for a few months to, I guess, it's the, the longest is maybe a year and a half. I don't know. And they're put in these situations. Um, and, and, and DeMarcus and I were saying, just trying to find levity a little bit. You know, that some of the people that we went to high school were thinking about them actually having a cop uniform on. Uh, it's absolutely absurd. Um, <laughs> you know, talking about that and chuckling about that, but the reality of it is this is true. Like, we have people on forces who are not equipped at all to de-escalate situations or who are looking for opportunities to exert force and uh, demonstrate their power over somebody because they're behind a badge. And until we start to think about the money that we do allocate to training and how these officers are trained, we're going to continue to see this happen as well, I think. Mm-hmm. And I want to follow up on that, mm-hmm. too, because there's a source. Um, if you got, if people want to Google discoverpolicing.org and you can just type in 
training academy life. And it's going to give you a breakdown of kind of the police training topics. It's a skill. It was a, the, the Bureau of Justice Statistics did a study of pretty much uh, police departments all across the country. And they talked to, talk to their academies to see how often and how many hours do they spend on training certain things. And when you look at things like uh, their whip weapons and defensive tactics, use of force training, um, on average, they spend about 60, uh, more than 60 hours. So for defensive tactics, they spend 60 hours of training. Firearm skills is what they absolutely spend the most time on out of all the different elements of training is 71 hours of firearm skills, 21 hours of use of force and non-lethal weapons, only 16 hours, right? So even in, in that question where we hear these conversations of, oh, what happens or why don't police officers use non-lethal more often? Well, they're trained in that the least compared to all the other forms. But then when we look at other things that we would like to see when we talk about community policing and, uh, you know, just better policing that we would like to see, right? And involvement, engaging with the community, uh, police officers have very little training in. Um, so. In their self-improvement category, they only spend eight hours on average. Um, 98% of the police academy spend eight hours on average on ethics and integrity, right? Compared to the 71 hours of firearm skills and communications, they only spend 15 hours, right? In professionalism, they only spend 11 hours. And in stress management, they only spend six hours on average, right? Stress management. It's a stressful job. It's a lot going on. So the things we would like to see police officers trained in the most, they get the least amount of training. But what we see the most... the killings, the lethal force is what they get trained the absolute most. And so, yeah, I think you're right. Um, going back and switching up those numbers to what I like to see. And it's not even that, yes, you should know how to use a firearm because, you know, you're should be skilled in that regard. But we should see you trained in that just as much or, or stress management, professionalism, ethics and integrity should be trained just as much as we do. You see how to fire a gun. Right. So I think that explains a lot of the problem, because like you said, I have a lot of friends, too, straight from high school and their place. And I'm like, bro, how did this happen? Yeah. You know? <laughs> what is going on that you are here stopping people and I know who you are, what kind of person. You are not that people can't change, but this is probably not the line of uh, uh, a professional job I would see you in uh, if we were in high school. Absolutely. Um, And just, you know, I'm going to bring up a topic. You guys can feel free to say we're not touching that. Um, But there's there's a polarizing figure um, who's always at the, the front of these conversations uh, when incidents happen. And he has <laughs> rabid supporters and he mm-hmm. has uh, rabid critics. Sean mm-hmm. King. <laughs> you, mean, you mean Louis Farrakhan? <laughs> we started. We started <laughs> um, I have had people come to me and say, we can connect you with him. Do you want to have him on the show? You know, it's be a great, and I've I've been a part of issues where people have emailed him for support uh, as well, which I've always remained silent on. Um, but as to not influence this conversation, I'm not going to say anymore. I just want to know where where do you all stand on Sean King's involvement um, in, in these movements? Um, so I'll speak as someone who uh, worked with him in the past. So Ooh, I was okay. the. So I was the chair or one of the chairs for uh, the alumni of color conference at Harvard Graduate School of Education. And, um, you know, we were responsible for bringing speakers and it was very difficult to get people to uh, 
sign on because Harvard doesn't necessarily provide people with, you know, speaking fees and honoraria and stuff like that. And so people are like, what? This major university with this endowment? And so my initial impression of him was like, wow, he's really down for the cause because I reached out to a lot of uh, activists who had you know, gained a lot of public attention um, and it was cricket or it was kind of like a, yeah, I'll come if you give me $10,000, pay for my hotel and my flight. And I was just like, oh, okay, okay, well, we, we don't have that budget. So my initial impression was like, wow, you know, he's really down. He's doing this for free. It's kind of like, what do you need? He was willing to have like small group sessions with like, you know, student groups. Um, but during that time, there were people who knew him that also behind the scenes were like, mm, there. this is before everything became public. And it was kind of like, there are some rumblings behind the scenes where people are just not sure about him. And so I'm the type of person I like to give everybody a chance and make my own judgment. You know, since that has happened, a lot of things have come out to where it was kind of like, these were the things that people had warned me about in the past, and now they're more public, and now more people are saying them. Um, So I feel like my opinion of him has kind of evolved in a sense that, you know, maybe he took that opportunity because just as much as we needed him to help with our cause, being a speaker at Harvard, that definitely helps with other people's causes and provides them with maybe legitimacy that they did not necessarily have in the past. So it was kind of like, okay, maybe that was just mutually beneficial. I haven't worked with him since. That was like 2016. Um, And in that time, a lot has come out that just, it seems like kind of where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, And there's been a lot of smoke. Even just recently, there have been incidents where I felt like, um, I think he was releasing a book and he advertised it by drawing on the recent, like someone's recent killing, like, oh, I've been spending all weekend, you know, working on uh, raising funds for, you know, this person. I can't remember who. Um, so I really didn't have time to focus on my book, uh, which I'm releasing here. And if you buy it and help me get on Amazon. Talk, and I was just like, mm, I don't even know how I feel about that. Um <laughs> So, yeah, it's been some things that I'm just like, mm, I'm a step back um, because I'm not really maybe feeling the way you approach uh, your work. Yeah, I um, uh, Daph invited me to that same uh, conference. So I, I had the chance of meeting him at the little luncheon. Right. It was a lunch, Daph. Or yeah, it was like a that. luncheon. Mm-hmm. 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 Again. And at that time, he wasn't as well known as he was now. Um, and so I didn't know much about him, uh, but I respected the work that he did. And that he still does in some capacity today. Um, I feel like Sean King is kind of an example of that somebody tries to do more than he may be capable of <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, I feel that he is very good. And what I appreciated him in the past is that he was a very good mechanism for raising awareness of a lot of the injustices, um, not the ones that make national hair headlines, but the, the more local ones that people reach out to him, say, hey, this happened. And he used his platform to, to put light on that. So we can all see and hopefully raise some awareness and make something better for some folks and some families. Um, but I think that to me and Daph and I, you know, it's funny that you bring this conversation up because we've had quite a few conversations on the podcast about Sean King. And I wrote a short little blog post on our website about him and he was going with uh, him and D-Ray were going at each other. Um, and I feel that uh, to me, what have raised my eyebrows is what how he's been acting during this political 
process, um, uh, his support for Bernie Sanders, which is completely fine, um, but also the way he attacks folks that don't support Bernie was very problematic for me in just so many ways. Um, really just coming at Black folks, the Black community, um, seeing no fault in Bernie's ways, but also, like Dav said, the weird unnoticed things, right, of of him. I think it was the killing. It was, it was, uh, he was trying to prevent the death uh, penalty not, yep. of um, the execution of someone in the mm-hmm. South. And so then, yeah. And in that same post, he was like, yeah. So by the way, I was doing this. So y'all pr- uh, get my book. And then he's like, also my book is uh, the forward is written by Bernie Sanders and I'm going to all these Bernie Sanders events. And it just seems a little sketchy to me. Right. Um, as far as his motive, it doesn't seem to be about the people anymore. Um, it seems to be about his best interest in a lot of ways. And like Dav said, where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, you know, early on when I was like, okay, I heard a couple stories about his mishandling of funds, but now it just keeps coming and it keeps coming. And there are people who are way more in that world than we are. And I'm sure like there would be things if I was working with another professor or academic and I would see some sketchy things, there's some, there's going to be some truth to what I say, what I see and what I say about this other individual. Um, and so I think there are some things that we should all take pause to when it comes to Sean King. Um, but I would not say that he has no value, right? But I would say that uh, there are some things we can just, you know, not really pay too much attention of when it comes to him, especially when it comes to right now, definitely fund funding and fundraising opportunities, I would I would definitely tell people to to, to hesitate in that regard a little bit. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Demarcus. You, you look like you got something to say. <laughs> I have absolutely nothing to say. Um I think Terrell and uh Daphne said it best, but I think um there is a role for everyone. Um to piggyback off what Terrell said, he does a great job of drawing attention to things like you can't take that away from someone else but I think in these times in the past few years ever since Trayvon Martin I feel like there are a lot of people um, who may be skilled in certain ways um, but are turning their activism into like trying to parlay it into profits and celebrity and I just don't agree Mm -hmm. with it and I don't want to fly off the handle and say a bunch of things that are unfounded so I'm just going to be quiet but I feel like a lot of people um build these platforms and these digital followings um, and they play in the liberal world and say, hey, I got the people and they listen to me. Give me some money. And they leverage that and they play that game. And I'm, I'm just not for it. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to go back to being quiet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting is I first heard about Sean King before activism. Like he was involved as an advisor or, or, or something in some capacity in a startup at the time. It was like a music startup. Um, so I don't know how his name came to me at the time. I was solely advising folks in uh, entertainment and in the startup space. So somehow um, his name came to me and, and just as quickly as he got involved in the business, he got out of it. And um, that happens a lot in startups. So, you know, you don't really think anything about it. But over the years, I've seen that happen over and over and over again. So, you know, for me, I'm not attacking the man's race. You know, I, I know people get into that. He's actually pulling a Rachel Dolezal. I'm not getting into that. Right. Um, but what I do know is somehow I got on his distribution list, like his email list and I cannot get off. Right. So (laughs) I get the emails, um, for the, the various initiatives on the positive side. Yes. I believe he brings awareness. I do not believe that money he's raised for families that he's keeping, right? Because those families, some have come out and attested to the fact that, no, he raised this money and we got it, or they have not actively mm-hmm. criticized him publicly. So I won't sit up here and say, you know, he's, he's raising money in the, in the name of um, families who've suffered uh, immense loss. However, if 
you really pay attention uh, online or you receive his emails, you will see that his focus shifts a lot and he'll raise money for the North Star, you know, which he, he was picking up that baton um, to create a 24 hour news network uh, dedicated to our issues. He'll raise money mm-hmm. for grassroots law and this and that and a third. And they don't they never do what they've promised to do these organizations. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, if you don't have the infrastructure and you don't have um, the acumen to actually uh, create these organizations and make them sustainable, then you need to stop asking for money. Mm-hmm. Um, or you need to know your lane. And if your lane is, I can get people to give and I'm mm-hmm. uh, you know, a chair or someone behind the scenes, but I'm going to hire the experts to actually execute. Mm-hmm. If you have the inability to do that and you have the inability to accept responsibility when it fails, that tells me you're a megalomaniac. And there are many people who function this way in not-for-profit spaces. Um, and activism, and it's like this dirty little secret that you know you think they're you know they're all for the people, but a lot of this is self-serving. And when you have the when you don't have the ability to step down off your pedestal for the greater good, and and play in the lane that you're good at, and and have other people play in the other lanes for fear of losing some form of control and notoriety, that's a different problem. Um, so that that is what I perceive um, as the the issue. And you can't keep raising money and not delivering, and then just jumping onto something else. Um, because folks are now taking notice and that's going to drown out anything positive that you may have done to raise money for families or raise awareness in a way and mobilize. He does that very quickly and very effectively. I'm, I'm never going to take that away. Um, but how he's utilizing his influence in terms of taking people's money and not delivering on his own initiative, that is what Mm -hmm. I take issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm And I think uh, the mark has just raised a bigger point that I've kind of noticed and been, you know, skeptical about over the last six years. Um, it's just the number of people who seem to be just motivated by the number of followers they can get for the purposes of becoming famous or making money. Like, and you know, I do feel so. Like, I do feel like speakers, activists, I do feel like they should be paid. This is important work. So it's not like, oh, you should be starving and doing this for free. But I don't know if everybody's motives are pure. And I know for me, as I continue to get involved in platforms or spaces to where, you know, I'm asked my opinion or I'm, you know, contributing to the movement is to make sure that I am always mission driven and make sure, making sure that it is about the mission and never about me. And I think that's a good way for people to try to operate. You want to contribute, but I think sometimes uh, those bright lights, those flashing lights can be very attractive. And, but I think if you always focus on a mission, you know, kind of what you said, Alicia, you can step back to say, maybe in this capacity, I don't serve the mission as well. So let me so into someone else who can make this a little bit bigger and effective. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of uh, people who have the expertise to take your vision to the next level uh, and actually execute it. And I, I am just uh, wary of anyone who has an inability to loosen the rein some to bring those people in, um, but is still raising hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's where the question mark is for me. I, you know, I read the report that came out and. Um, uh, on his finances and, and what he's done. And I, I noted, noted the gaps like everybody else um, that, that left me still with some remaining uh, questions. And, and listen, I, people that who are affiliated with that report, I know, or I'm connected to in some way. Um, so in the spirit of full disclosure, people that I respect. Um, but 
those are the things where I feel like we need to, um, and not to say that one represents all, but it's important that the people who are the loudest voices in the movement are above reproach. We just don't get the benefit of, you know, mercy um, when things go bad, right? And and the there's two there's the chorus is getting louder and louder with regard to him, and I think some some important questions need to be answered, and I haven't seen them as many open letters as he publishes and as many things as he says. Um, about how persecuted he is, uh, the, the tough questions never get answered. And there are plenty of reporters, investigative reporters who have spoken to this and said, when I asked him about X, Y, and Z directly in evidentiary support for A, B, and C, he'd stop responding. So when, when that's your behavior repeatedly, there's a level of guilt there that you're trying to um, insulate yourself from. And you know that that's the piece. That's why I'm not um, uh, someone who, I'm not a complete, you know, I'm never going to get on the Internet and bash him like some people do and the names that they come up for him. But I'm also not a supporter for that reason. Why are you blocking people when they ask you the tough questions? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're willing to speak to certain things, the money that you've raised, to, you know, for families and articles. But the minute they ask you about some other stuff, um, the many things that you've raised money for for yourself, organizations that you head up for profit or otherwise, you don't have anything else to say. No, no, no. That 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 gives me pause. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, but he's not going anywhere and he's going to continue to mobilize and, and raise awareness, I think, um, unless he does something that uh, gets the alphabet boys on him. And then if you want to do an investigation, that's going to be a different conversation. But mm. if that's not happening, um, I think he'll continue to uh, bring awareness to certain issues. And, and there's there's value in that, uh, especially for these families. And I, I would never take that piece away. Um, but the last thing I want to bring up before I let you guys get out of here is. Uh, the habeas corpus issue in New York right now. DeMarcus, I know you alluded to this online, so I'll let you uh, take it from here. (laughs) Have you guys heard about this? No, I'm I'm missing this. What happened? So essentially, I think it's in three boroughs. Is that correct, DeMarcus? Yeah, it's in uh, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and the Bronx. In the Bronx, they have suspended uh, habeas corpus. Mm, I'm looking at I'm looking at it uh, now. Um, wow. So they they're really just going to hold these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And which to me, that should motivate everyone to get out in the streets, because like that's a correct me if I'm wrong, Delisha. I'm not the lawyer here, but that's like a constitutional right. So basically that, it, it requires that a person um, under arrest be brought before a judge or into court, uh, especially to secure um, the person's release unless there are lawful grounds shown for their de- detention. So if that is suspended, that means they can hold you without giving Forever. you a reason for why they're holding you. Forever. Mm. And that, that like made my eyebrows big because, you know, this is something that I think the judge's name was James Burke, I think his name was. Um, but the NYPD, if I'm not mistaken, went to him and asked him for this. Yeah, James Burke uh, in New York. And he pushed it through. And I'm like, what if they detain like organizers, people who are actually leading and speaking out and just hold them indefinitely and lose them? It's, it can kind of turn into a, uh, in, a, in the worst of situations, it can turn into like a Guantanamo Bay situation where you're just being held um, because of the influence that you have. And I just think that it's just outrageous that it's not being highlighted. Yeah. And where this comes into play with the Constitution um, is that there is a suspension clause that, that basically says that the, the writ of habeas corpus should not be suspended uh, unless in cases of rebellion uh, or invasion of public safety or safety. So that I, without having done all the research, I'm sure that that's what they're um, resting their their hat on. So 
which interesting, what is interesting to me is the the bail funds for a lot of these places are are have met their need. So like the Brooklyn Bail Fund has come out and said, we have all the money we need to bail people out um, if they need to be bailed out. Now that, that cash bail is not the um, the obstacle to release, now we have a suspension of habeas corpus in three boroughs in New York. I, mm. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. And I think it goes along with what we've been seeing in like broader stories of um police officers finding ways to trap protesters just for the purpose of arresting them, you know, putting them in zip ties where people like show pictures where their arms or like it looks like the circulation has partially been cut off because they've been in there, that they've been dropping uh, after they release the people, that they've been dropping them off without their phones, without their keys in like random places in the city, making it almost impossible for them to get home. And it's just kind of like a it goes back to the point where these these people are not trying to enact public safety. It, it seems like they are just as much a part of the anarchy as any regular citizen. And, you know, I hope something is done because when you guys talked about the, you know, when might people be released, it made me think about Khalif Browder, who, you know, was not able to make bail. He was in solitary confinement for two years and eventually committed suicide. And we do not want this to happen again to where people just aren't released. Um, and there's no accountability for where are people in the system and why are they even being held in the first place? You know, I agree. I think there's um, a strategy with this when you see things like this. Uh, and we've seen this again in the past federal government being involved in movements, either trying to suppress them or strategically use them to their advantage to get rid of some folks. And so when you, you know, you remove this kind of protection, it allows now law enforcement or whoever to go in and get who they want without question. Um, And I think that's probably their biggest motive is that there are people who may not even really be a part of this movement, but people, they are using this movement to get who they've been had their eye on for a while. Right. And they can use this as a, as a cover to do their true intentions. And so I think yeah, it's something to keep our eyes on, because like, like Dave said, that's the first thing that popped in my mind was Khalif Browder. It's this assumption that our criminal justice system works in the capacity that can actually be efficient. Right. And oh, we're going to hold you for 24 hours. We're going to get all the right paperwork. We're going to get you in the right place. We're going to get you out on time. That's just clearly not how it runs, especially in places like New York. We would hope so, but it's just not. They will so it's a really scary yeah, exactly. It's a really scary situation now that they have this ability to do so. And um, it's something that should be concerning for, for all parties involved, to say the least. And these are the things that keep me up at night, um, because I feel like, you know, as a, a, a people, too. And, and I, when I say people, I don't just mean black folks. I mean, those who are committed to the movement, the things that can get lost sometimes in the news cycle. Right. Where, you know, there's certain things that are really loud. You can't miss it. And there are things like this that almost quietly happen um, or it takes longer uh, for the news to make its way through the public. And some people may not even know on its face what habeas corpus means. And um, these are folks who are out there right now in the public who can end up in the back Mm -hmm. of a paddy wagon and nobody knows where they are. Um, There's no record of them in the system. Mm -hmm. They can't be bailed out, et cetera. Um, And then we've got a, a different problem on our hands. Uh, before it was like, we just need the money to help get these people out. Now that is happening across the country. Now they're there and, and, and there may be, um, there may be a, a possibility that there's no getting them out to the point you made, um, Daphne, earlier about staring in the face of your oppressor. Now you got people in a system that can't be released 
and the very system that's killing us. Um, mm-hmm. And we all we all know the stories of people being detained for a weekend or, you know, for a, a week and they die in jail and there's there's no explanation. There's no explanation for why that happened. So these are the things that keep me up at night. Um, and I and I do. Uh, I think what bothers me um, and causes a lot of anxiety and pain for me is knowing that there's going to be more bloodshed in the next uh, in the next couple of weeks um, mm-hmm. by way of the things that are occurring out there. And, and, you know, you look back into history, you know, that is a, um, a part of the process, unfortunately. Uh, but it's hard to read these stories of, you know, people who are being shot in incidents out there just trying to, to, to raise their voice or, you know, the, the stories that continue to come out um, with uh, incidents with police. And now with this piece of being held, um, on a constitutional suspension and what's going to be, uh, the fallout from that. Who's, who's next, right. That we're going to hear about on the news. And these are the things that contribute to my insomnia, uh, for sure. Oh yeah. Cause they, they enacted this on Thursday, right? So that means they can round up everybody on Friday without question, everybody in there all weekend. So you're not going to be held for just that 24 hours, right. So the courts open back up Monday morning for the most part. So, um, I think it was very strategic on their end of how they implemented this and put it into action. Absolutely. Um, before we head, I got one one topic that I wanted to discuss mm-hmm. with you all, uh, particularly Delisha and Daphne. I kind of mentioned earlier to Daphne, and you know, I think it's worth mentioning for sure, is that even when we talked about um, the Sean King and you know, the post I had written, it was a brief post talking about D-Ray McKesson and, and Sean King going at it. And, and my whole issue was like, so what, right? Why do we even put so much attention on these two dudes when they are really never or haven't been the the major core of building up these movements, right? Building up these movements have always been on the backs of Black women. When we're talking Black Lives Matter, Black Girl Magic, Me Too, Say Your Name, all that kind of stuff um, has been Black women. But yeah, we put all our attention on, on Black men. And then, you know, on the flip side, we see this similar thing happening when we talk about police violence and police brutality. Although, you know, some notable cases happen, but there are so many cases concerning Black women that really never seem to get the same response when it comes to um, Black men versus Black women in this regard. And there was um, an old colleague of mine, Dr. Aria Holiday, posted a couple of articles online that I read, um, one on Bustle called The Lack of Mobilized Outrage for Police Killing Black Women is an Injurious Erasure, and another one that was in time by Brittany Cooper, Why Are Black Women and Girls Still an Afterthought in Our, sto- in our Outrage Over Police Violence? Um, and both are really good articles. You know, one's more of a blog type and the other one's more a uh, time, you know, kind of professional in some ways, but they both offer very similar overlapping insights into this thing we're seeing when it comes to the response and kind of the erasure of Black women in these situations and how do we begin to make sure their names are said as loud or um, the outrage is just as hurtful or out there when it comes to them as Black men. So I just wanted to throw this out there because, you know, you both, of course, you and Daphne are Black women. And when you see things like this, just being in your position and how you identify how do you navigate this and how does it kind of make you feel in these situations? Because again, I see that Black women have always had the back of Black men. Really, the Black community at large has been the core and they just seem to never get that same respect when it comes time to to respond, to fight back, or just to get acknowledged. Um, so us being in the midst of this, I just wonder, has this crossed your mind and what are your, your thoughts? You know, it's, it's funny you should bring this up because I had a call, um, a Zoom call on Friday with some uh, girlfriends and former colleagues of mine who are all Black women, uh, where we just had a collective exhale um, and a safe space to talk about this very point from a few different vantage points. And and, and that is everything you mentioned, but also um, 
how we're seeing in corporate spaces, our voices can be co-opted as well um, by Black men. And um, the all of that together, we all kind of reached a breaking point and felt uh, a bit overwhelmed by it all. And And I think what I struggle with often is I find myself saying, well, what about Brianna? What about Sandra Bland? What about um, Corinne? You know, bringing up all these names, but trying to find the balance between uh, bringing that up without uh, causing internal debate about it. Um, and not that I'm a shrinking violet in any way, but ultimately not trying to create division, right, amongst all of us who are for the advancement of our people um, and for, for better treatment. But I know from a psychological perspective, um, it's been weighing on me heavily um, in terms of the the impact that systemic racism has on us and the work that we are doing um, to to actually reverse that, be it in corporate spaces, be it in activism, be it in, in, in policy reform without getting the credit. And I remember um, I've seen one of the founders of Black Lives Matter speak live, but it was at a reproductive justice event. So we're all women, right? And and that that's where you see um, their voices amplified the most. But I think before we uh, expect uh, the majority to acknowledge and, and put Black women on the equal playing field, that's something we need to to have elevated in our own communities as well. So if we're if we're not doing that, um, we absolutely can't expect white people to do it. So that that's a conversation I think we need to be having internally of why there is that disparity in terms of who's the loudest voice and what can we do to make sure. And that and back to the point we were making about celebrities, I think the same thing has to be said for Black men. When you're given opportunities, um, you being able to say, you know what, I'm not the voice to speak to this, or I may be one voice, but I'm not coming on unless you have a Black woman on as well. It takes that also. So the value um, of our lives uh, in terms of the, the victim piece of it, but also what we bring to the table um, to move these 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 moments forward has to be recognized by our own uh, first. And I don't know if you guys saw the the, the versus battle between Kirk Franklin and, and Fred Hammond, um, mm-hmm. but they read off the names of victims and it was all men. And mm-hmm. Twitter lit up, Instagram lit up, and you could tell that somebody had pulled their coattail over text or they saw the comments and they came back and Fred said, you know, he tried to put some spin on it. But basically, he, he, it sounded like the women were an afterthought. And mm-hmm. I think that is reflective of um, what you see happening in a lot of different spaces and the value that we place on the life of a Black man and the voice of a Black man that we don't necessarily place on a Black woman. And I'm not saying that that's all on Black men because uh, Black women do it too. It's an internalized uh, patriarchal system. Um, so until we deal with that internally, we can't expect to see change outwardly. Um. I, I feel like Delisha, you know, you just said it all. And I'm sorry, I went off right there. <laughs> no, no. And that was kind of like the perfect answer. You know, we have to find a way to help, I think, Black men to think from a more intersectional perspective and not see it as like a threat to the progress that people are trying to make on their behalf, because I think that's what it turns into. I used to get into so many online debates and discussions uh, around this issue. And there are people who genuinely think that we can't improve the Black community overall without prioritizing Black men, because they're supposed to be the lead, the head, the provider. But it's just kind of like, we got to be whole as a community. We can't put anybody on the back burner and the more that we can come together as 
a, a unit, um, I, I think the better. And I think part of that is amplifying the voices of women. So, you know, who do you think of as the face for Black Lives Matter? A lot of people thought of it as D-Ray, but it was not even started by him. And I mean, even when he would, I think he would publicly say like, you know, that's not my organization. That's not, but he became the face of it. And I think it is easy sometimes to put the face of a Black man on a movement related to Black people, even if a lot of the legwork is being done uh, by Black women. Um, and I think we have to just make sure that we aren't erasing the contributions of Black women to the movement. But beyond that, make sure we aren't erasing them from the narrative of who is hurt by police violence, who, you know, is suffering because we we all are. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and I don't know the statistics in terms of police brutality uh, with regard to Black men versus Black women. But I I will say this, and I brought it up uh, online the other day that my most recent encounter with the police was just last year. And as we had um, raised all this money and served these kids in the neighborhood um, in, our, in our hometown and hundreds of people, the, the next day I was going with a family friend and my mom to put uh, supplies in storage and somebody called the cops and said that we were stealing. So I'm standing out there and all of a sudden you see cops come from both directions and pull up. And literally, it's like the rock, the gravel is spinning out. That's how they, they pulled up. And the lights are shining and they stopped maybe three feet in front of me. Thankfully, no guns drawn, nothing like that. But even after I explained, you know, while why we were there, and as you can imagine, my tone was not as deferential as it should have been. But after I had explained why we were there, um, it was the Black man with me that they they asked for his his ID. To, to check for, mm. for warrants mm. um, in that instance. And that was a sobering moment for me. It's three of us out there. And even after I explained everything, you went to, you know, the man with us to continue to harass and try to, you know, to find something on him. So, you know, I, I acknowledge that this is a layered conversation. Um, and there are, and that's obviously one anecdotal example. But if I, you know, if I sit here, my brother and I trade stories about encounters with the police, Demarcus, I'm sure your number of encounters outweighs mine. Oh, for sure. I've had the police pull guns on me, so. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not in the business of, and, and Terrell, ironically, I think we talked about this when you came on the show, the Oppression Olympics to figure out um, who's being oppressed the most. I, I don't get in that game, but we are, we are all victims, both genders, and we need to acknowledge not only that piece, but also the value that we both add to the movement. And certain voices need to be amplified for the for the work that they're doing. And um, that's just not happening at a, at a level that that I, I think it should be. But those are conversations that need to be fostered amongst uh, within, you know, within the family before we start going outside. Mm-hmm. For sure. I agree. And I think that, uh, you know, just just speaking to, to black men and it's because we have this conversation when we speak to white allies, right? And we'll say, hey, when you're in certain spaces that black folks can't be and when you're with your white friends and you're doing whatever white family functions and you allow them to say certain things or think a certain way without challenging it, right? You are complicit and you are allowing this issue to continue. And I feel like the same can be said for, for black men is that when we find ourselves in spaces uh, where certain things are being said or black women are just being neglected, we should take more accountability as far as recognizing and highlighting that, right, in those spaces. And it might be off-putting and it might be different a little bit because you're not 
just doesn't come naturally, right? Uh, because of just how we're so inclined to think, just because this is a patriarchal society. But I do challenge Black men to begin to, when you're around your buddies, your homies or whatever, and we had these conversations, say her name, right? And tell her story and say they are important as well in these spaces. And hopefully just even doing that little bit of, of recognizing moving forward, the importance of bringing us together as a community um, because it's just what is what is needed. And I think Black men definitely have to be accountable and have more responsibility in that regard as far as making sure that our, our Black queens are heard. Absolutely. That's a fact. And I like to, I want to end on a positive note because I feel like so much of this stuff um, is heavy. But one of the things that I've been trying to focus on uh, are the small wins. Um, and some people may consider them big wins, but considering all that we're facing, I, I call them small. Um, but one of the things that I, I noted in the news was the University of Minnesota terminating its contract. Uh, with the uh, Minneapolis Police Department and then Minneapolis school, uh, public schools following suit um, and voting to do the same. So that, that's that been something that um, I am taking note of and whatever the, the motivating factors might have been for that, that to me is, is something that I'd like to see replicated across the country. So um, that's a small, small win that I'm taking into this new week. Are there any small wins that you guys have that you're... Um, seeing and, and finding a bit of comfort or joy in that the tide might be turning? I see that. Um, one thing I think that is important is, you know, regardless of, I know I've even questioned, you know, we see a lot of corporations, right, donating money and coming with their statements. And of course, we can always naturally question the intent behind it of how genuine it is. But I do think it is a win that a lot of the these people and organizations and nonprofits who have been on the front lines and been pushing for this uh, for years have now just kind of got this massive amount of monies coming their way, uh, millions of dollars in some cases. Um, when you talk about Black Lives Matter movement or Kaepernick's Know Your Rights campaign, et cetera. Um, so now they are now getting a lot of resources to continue to do the work even more um, because they're the ones that do this work when everything is quiet and there's no protest right. on the street. And so now giving them those, the financial backing to, to, do it longer and, and better and stronger and more reach, um, I think is definitely a win. And we should be grateful of that. Uh, and, and we can still question the intention behind these, uh, you know, these companies later on, even after all is said and done. But at least they are the right people are getting some of the good money. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And to piggyback off of what Terrell said uh, this week, if I'm not mistaken, um, in L.A., the police department um, said they're like reallocating like 100 million dollars or 150 million dollars from the police budget to go to other services to directly affect people of color. Now, what that looks like, clearly, I don't know because I didn't read all the details mm -hmm. of the story. Um, but that is a step and an example of a major city making a change and trying to do some of the things that I would just discuss during this conversation about defunding police departments and actually um, reallocating sources to things that are actually uh, meet the needs of the citizens and that are not reactionary, but proactive. Kind of on on what you just said, Demarcus, and, and looking at some of the changes that uh, law enforcement agencies or uh, power player systems of power uh are making Brianna's Law, which is aimed at regulating no-knock warrants um, in Louisville. It recently passed uh, the Public Safety Committee. So that's a small win um, that hopefully we can start to regulate um, these no-knock warrants and we won't have another Brianna Taylor um, in the future. Absolutely. Um, so on, on that note, I want to thank Daph and Ty, you guys, for joining us. 
today um, and talking about issues of the day and offering your thoughts and, you know, to the to general public. You'll be hearing more from us all together later this year. Thanks to Rona, <laughs> something that postponed, um, but we're, we're working and, and brainstorming and we'll be we'll be coming uh, to you again, hopefully uh, sometime for the years. I think we're looking at Q4 now um, with a virtual event. We'll, we'll be able to, to work together as well. Um, we loved having you guys on and we want to make sure that people know if they don't know about uh, the Black and Highly Dangerous podcast, that they do know about it before we, we let you guys go. So where can they find it? Uh, yeah, you can definitely find us and uh, everywhere for the most part when it comes to um, podcast platforms. You know, we're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes, we're on Google Play, um, all that kind of stuff. Podbean is our host. Uh, so you can just go there. You can just find us on our website, blackandhighlydangerous.com. Social media, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our social media handle is the same, at BHD Podcast. So, you know, you can find us there and, we're, and engage with us. We love, we get a lot of DMs, especially on Instagram and stuff like that. And Twitter is rising too. Um, and we are, we're very, we always are just contacting people and talking to you and having conversations. So we look forward to that. And um, outside of that, you know, yeah, just, just you can email us at BHD podcast at gmail.com. If you have any ideas, comments, questions, concerns, guests, whatever it is, we are very responsive. Um, and that's what keeps us going. So whatever it is, hit us up and we'll be glad to hear from you all. Oh, DeMarcus, any parting words? Stay safe. Protect your mental <laughs> and protect your chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love one another, you know. <laughs> for, our, for our listeners, as we've been saying for weeks, you know, take care of yourselves. We know our tagline is be extraordinary in an ordinary day, um, but we are in difficult times right now, as DeMarcus said earlier. So being extraordinary sometimes is just self-soothing, taking time for self-care, just maintaining your peace. Anything outside of that is a bonus. And if it's not possible right now, we understand. So do what you need to do to take care of yourself first. Make sure you check out uh, the Black and Highly Dangerous podcast. Continue to like, share, and subscribe for all of us. We need your support. Um, and we appreciate you guys listening and talking back to us uh, when you can. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.